Hello and welcome to these audio recordings from Project Echo, Westwick PHN Hub, COVID-19 Pandemic Response Echo Network Series. Series 3, Session 1, 8th of October 2020, where has the year gone? Good morning and thank you for joining us as we kick off our um, third series of uh, COVID-19 Network and this is our second paediatric mini-series, simply titled Back to School in Regional Victoria Part 1. So with the state government's regional plan for reopening and safely keeping schools and early childhood education and care open in regional Victoria, um, we are going to today discuss some of the um, policy and planning frameworks that uh, have guided the um, opening of government schools across the state. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, schools and education system have played a crucial role in keeping their communities safe and informed. Teachers and other school staff have adopted new policies and infection control protocols at a lightning pace, integrated virtual platforms into their suite of delivery methods and work to address the concerns of their communities and support them to adjust to these changing and uncertain times. Sounds familiar, right? Primary care has played a crucial role alongside schools supporting families through these transitions and continuing care provisions through similar disruptions. We enter again into another phase of change and uncertainty as children in regional Victoria return to on-site learning this week. This morning we'll be reviewing the evidence base supporting the reopening of schools and reviewing the risk mitigation strategies that will support return to school at this time. We'll aim to tease out some of the issues that might surface to primary care over the coming weeks and months and we'll investigate how our roles as primary care clinicians, in our roles as primary care clinicians, we can support families to safely re-engage with this vital part of their child's growth and development. Um, So our agenda today, it's a packed agenda and we're going to basically start this series with a town hall hall style echo. So we've got Kate um, Graham bringing us a health pathways update, uh, Rachel Cowan infectious diseases update from Ballarat and Health Service and Surrounds and bringing us an update on the regional public health units. Associate Professor Deb Freeman um, will bring us an update around um, Geelong Corridor and Surrounds and a review of the evidence guiding return to schools. I'd like to introduce special guest this morning, Dr Claire Tobin. She's a Principal Health Advisor and COVID-19 Deputy Coordinator to the Department of Education Education and training in Victoria, and she's bringing us uh, a presentation on the um, key recommendations guiding the return to schools, a COVID safe plan for schools, and, and some of the th- areas where um, primary care and schools might interface around supporting this transition. She'll also describe to us some of the planning around, um, well, you know, touch wood, hopefully not, um, but in the in the event of an outbreak in the future. Um, and then we're going to be joined by Rowena Cliffs, CEO of Westwick PHN, to talk to us a bit about what's, um, what some of the planning activities and some of the thoughts over the coming months for the PHN. We'll finish with our rapid five answers on infection prevention and control um, before we head out for the session. Uh, learning outcomes, yep, as always, triple aim to bring you information about COVID-19, to talk about um, management and assessment of um, non-COVID respiratory uh, symptoms and um, fevers, and also to consider uh, continuing care through the pandemic response. We'll be looking at the implementing um, policy and guidelines into real-world primary care settings, building support about knowledge, knowledge resources and pathways, and, of course, engage in a community of practice for discussion. Discussion. All right, thank you very much. And um, uh, with that, I'm going to now hand over to our first presenter, Kate Graham. Thank you, Kate. Good morning, everyone. And it's chaos in my household as <laughs> I return excitedly to school for the first day. Um, so, in terms of health pathways, um, as always, we've got the COVID suite of health pathways, which 
you know, remain in importance um, despite the lower case numbers, as we can see with the re-emergence of cases in New South Wales after 12 days this week and the cases that are sporadically appearing in regional Victoria due to seeding from Melbourne. Um, we have a child pathway um, on COVID, which does have information about schools. Um, it's got the um, documents at the base in the resources about managing illness in schools. Um, also, I just wanted to mention that we really want to encourage our patients back to face-to-face -face consulting where it's required, because that's been seen to be a real gap. Um, and looking as well at our standard pathways on chronic disease. Um, importantly, in this season, I don't know if everyone else got the rain that we did last night, but asthma and hay fever management are really important when we're thinking about symptom management. We've got pathways on both of them, um, but also in terms of thinking about thunderstorm asthma risk, managing asthma and hay fever symptoms are essential because the last thing that we want to see is an outbreak of thunderstorm asthma clogging up emergency departments um, and lots of respiratory patients in the time of COVID. So with that, I'll hand back to you and um, we look forward to hearing from everyone today. Thank you, Kate. Kate. Over to you, Rachel. So um, it's been relatively civilised in a general regional area. For us, um, up in Ballarat at least, we haven't had a, a case uh, for a number of weeks and certainly in the region we haven't had a, a case in, for a number of weeks. As I said last time, we've actually gone through and trained up a whole uh, group of people um, at the local sites of Stool, Ararat, Wimmera, various other areas around the region to help us out with the monitoring. So they're doing the monitoring and taking ownership of the monitoring out with uh, if there are uh, external cases and then subsequently um, the centralised coordination is done through Ballarat. Um, so that's been pretty exciting. The other exciting news is that, um, which you've probably heard on the news as well, is DHHS are um, starting to stand up um, independent public health units. Um, that's also happening in Melbourne at the Western, the Austin and Monash and uh, is also going to be happening at Geelong and Ballarat as well, which are these as standalone a staged introduction of a standalone public health unit, which is very exciting. So that's still in planning works and we'll start obviously with communicable diseases and then go on to move to incorporate other areas, including things like environment and schools and stuff, not schools, but, you know, environment and, and water and, and, and things that are, are locally important as well. Um, as far as sort of the activity and contact tracing at the moment, the um, regional centres have actually all been helping out, or at least Ballarat, Geelong and um, Bendigo have all been helping out with the um, contact tracing around the Kilmore outbreak uh, at the moment. So uh, there's been a lot of coordination around that and getting the three centres uh, helping out down, helping Kilmore out as far as sort of isolating and, and monitoring close contacts in that region. So. Uh, there's been quite a, a strong focus on um, isolation um, and quarantine uh, for the population around Kilmore in an effort to try and contain everything. And uh, they've tested, I think, over well over 300 people in the last couple of days and they've all come back negative. So it's, it's looking like things are, are getting uh, contained, but obviously we're still not out of the woods yet. But I'll hand over to Deb. Good morning, um, everybody. Um, so October the 8th, nearing the end of the second wave, um, only 140 active cases in the state right now. 
and only 12 of them are mystery cases. So that's less than 10%. And that's been the important metric that we've been looking at all along. Regional Victoria, as Rachel's already said, is very quiet. In Barwon Southwest and in the Greater Geelong area, we've got not only new, no new cases, we've got not a single active case. And we don't have any mystery cases. If you don't have any cases, you can't have any mystery cases. So there you go. Um, Rachel's already spoken about Kilmore and some of the regional teams have been assisting with that contact tracing endeavour. What does this all tell us? So we've got very low numbers in the state. I guess the recent, you know, hotspots in Melbourne indicate to us just how quickly things can change, how quickly things spread from metropolitan to regional. It also shows us that some retail um, environments can be reasonably high risk. And it also tells you that if you go to a regional area to have a meal, you might get found out if it's illegal. So just the same as if you, you know. So these things get have a way of being found out. The big news, obviously, is all about schools, which is what we're going to talk about today. I just, I guess, a brief talk about schools in general, and I'm basing this on a report from the Murdoch Children's Institute, which has not only looked at international data, but has actually had a handle on all the Victorian data. Very briefly, I guess what I wanted to um, mention here is in keeping with what's been said before, young children, so that's usually under the age of 10 years old, probably um, probably don't have the same role in transmission as adults do. Um, but children over the age of 10 or possibly 12, it depends which guideline you read, possibly behave like adults do. This, if anyone hasn't read the Murdoch Children's document, it is an excellent document and it's very easy to read and comprehensive. I guess the other thing to say is that um, schools are not a greater risk than other environments and obviously a lot of negative um, consequences of children not going to school. Um, one of the things that we've seen, and this is what I've seen by analysing data on not only infections in schools but infections among healthcare workers, is that the increasing numbers of cases completely mirror what's happening in the community. When cases are driven really high in the community, that's when you get more cases in schools because it mirrors exactly what's happening in households and that's exactly when we see more healthcare worker infections. So they seem to all be on the same trajectory. Um, I guess the other thing um, in terms of um, numbers that they've found um, in the Murdoch um, review is that two-thirds of all of the cases in Victoria that involved schools were really a single case, and that would be a single case either in a teacher or a student. So they weren't large outbreaks. Um, and so I, I won't talk any more about the Murdoch paper, but it really is worth a, um, a look at. There have been some interesting papers in JAMA as well about schools. There's been one that highlights that school closure disproportionately impacts people either in minority groups or of low income, and we know that that's the case locally. Um, the other thing that we know, there's a meta-analysis that was published in JAMA as well, showing that children, young children, are less likely to acquire infection than adults are within the same household. So their relative risk, they're less than half as likely as adults are in the same household. And children older than 12 or 14 behave more like adults. Um, and then I guess um, 
their recommendation is that when you look at schools and when you look at what to do with them, you should be looking at it in the context of the rates of community transmission, which is why kids going back to school now is entirely appropriate when we have such limited community numbers. Um, I guess it's just a couple of other things to mention. So Rachel already mentioned the new public health units, which will be assisting with contact tracing in the first instance. Um, I guess one of the things to say, which has been a bit of a win for regional contact tracing recently, is that we've helped to shape some of the changing guidelines regarding contacts of contacts. So this has always been contentious about how far you spread your um, how far you, you spread your isolation and quarantine of people when there've been exposure and how big the circle gets. And in several of the outbreaks that we managed regionally, we were quite a bit stricter and we're a bit more inclusive of people and the department is actually now taking that on board, especially when it comes to the recent cluster in Kilmore. Um, there was a couple of questions that came in about casual contacts um, related to this recent Chadston outbreak. And this is exactly in line with what I just said. Some of these were not said to be close contacts and it is indicative of a change in thinking about how widely you spread the net for quarantine and how that's going to be. It always has to be done on a case-by-case -case basis, but it is going to help us to contain clusters more carefully. Um, and then finally, what's the role of GPs now? Where does everybody sit? And I guess face-to-face um, -face consulting is incredibly important. Um, we need to look at the health needs that have been unmet for several months and the potential risks that are going to come out of health conditions that have been neglected. Um, so I guess from my point of view, face-to-face -face consulting is probably one of the most important things where where necessary, i.e. if it's a brief consultation that you think is best done by telehealth, you're the best judge of that. And then I guess in terms of keeping schools open, I think GPs play a critical role in terms of being able to assess children where the question is, is this hay fever or is it something else? In differentiating between these symptoms that kids are going to get very regularly, the um, having GPs on board is critical to be able to look at the risk that a child has, look at their symptoms and determine what to do with that. So I see it as being a really critical role. Um, I guess that was all I was going to say right now and I will pop back and answer questions later. Thank you. Thank you very much, Deb. Um, so I thought I'd like to now uh, hand over to Dr Claire Tobin, Principal Health Advisor and COVID-19 Deputy Director for the Department of Education and Training. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Claire. Oh, thanks very much for having me, Bianca and everyone. Um, it's fantastic to be here and echoing what Deb just then said then and all of your thoughts. We're so pleased to have students returning to schools. Um, and it's fantastic to be here because we can see that we recognise that GPs play such a critical role um, having that respected position in the community to provide, I suppose, reassurance to families and, and about their children's return to school and also to staff members at a time when, when the cases are much more under control um, and also noting the range of controls that we have in place for schools to be really safe places for both staff and students. Um, I'm really just going to touch today on sort of the policy settings that are um, in place around the return of schools and talk about some of the evidence that sits behind that. But as my role um, as principal health advisor at, 
uh, at DET, we work really closely with Department of Health and Human Services um, and the Chief Health Officer so that all of the, um, the policy advice and guidance that we provide to schools um, is in lockstep with DHHS um, and with the advice of the Chief Health Officer. Um, as Deb mentioned, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute um, have been doing some research and they've really taken the um, data that's collected by DHHS uh, around all cases um, and outbreaks associated with early childhood services and schools throughout the year up until the 31st of August. And they've um, done a deeper analysis of that data. Uh, and the key findings there, as Deb mentioned, with, um, with it for the vast majority of cases, most of those cases were single case um, cases in a education setting, which um, didn't go on to cause further infection, suggesting that um, the controls that are in place in schools and early childhood services are quite effective at containing transmission. Uh, but as Deb pointed out, when, um, when there are high rates of transmission in the community, tra transmission in school seems to be a, a mirror or, or reflect that too. Um, and so the report did did try and unpack and look look more about what sort of transmission um, occurred in schools and how that happened. They did find that um, children under 10 years appeared to have a lesser role in transmission than, than children over 10 years. And some of the, those findings were um, able to be put into the model to predict what the impact of the return of schools were and inform that decision to bring our primary students um, in Metro Melbourne back earlier, which we're all really pleased about and they're starting this week. Um, we're, we're, it, there's so many sort of different um, findings that we could sort of go into. There's quite a deep analysis and um, MCRI also looked at the literature that um, uh, from other countries um, and what we've seen internationally. But really, I think what the main takeaway that I would share, um, just because we can only skin the surface today from the MCRI report, is a really reassuring message and key recommendation that schools um, and early childhood services, we want them to um, to reopen and also to stay open. Um, that with a range of controls in place that we already have open in schools, that they are really safe places for safe for staff and students to be to be at, at this time in the pandemic. Um, and so we're really happy to have those results um, and to be guided by the work of MCRI in informing the advice that we're providing to schools and early childhood services at this time. Gemma, we'll just um, tick a scan over the next couple of slides, which just talk about the return dates. So obviously in regional Victoria, where I know most of you are, um, Students are back this week face-to-face -face, uh, and then as of next week, all of the secondary students will be returned as well and we're really pleased to have that certainty for both the regional students and on the next slide, um, the metropolitan students. So this week, um, in uh, well, obviously the big news yesterday was that the GAP was held for all of our VCE students. I'm really pleased that that went through so smoothly. Um, next week, we've got our, our preps, year sevens and 11 and 12s returning. Uh, and then from the 26th of October, um, we'll have all students returning, including years eight to 10. Um, this framework here, which is um, the COVID safe principles for schools, uh, this really guides, um, gives a snapshot of all of the advice that we 
uh, asked schools, as well as um, a very similar approach in early childhood services, to put in place to reduce the risk of transmission. And it sort of um, neatly describes how the types of behaviours, um, how we want schools to set up their spaces and environments um, to modify, um, postpone or adapt their um, activities. And then, of course, to respond to COVID-19 risk if that's detected in the school setting. Um, this, it, throughout the pandemic, we've been providing advice like this to schools about how to reduce risk of transmission, um, as I mentioned. And this advice has been developed with DHHS um, and endorsed by the Chief Health Officer. It's also been informed by the um, literature review um, of international evidence that MCRI conducted. The there's, um, I, I might just comment on a few things that we're giving greater prominence to with the emerging evidence, particularly in term four. And one of those is in um, uh, how we, in creating a COVID safe space. Um, so very much recognising that the emergency, the emerging evidence, sorry, about promoting outdoor ventilation um, and making sure that there's great airflow within um, rooms wherever possible. There's a whole range of ways we can obviously support that. Um, windows open, using door jams to keep um, the air flowing. Um, and importantly, if there are air conditioners uh, that are available to use to make sure that they're not used on recirculate, we want air to be airflow to be moving through the rooms. In term four, we'll just have, a, we also are trying to enforce a greater um, focus on uh, creating workforce bubbles uh, or reducing mixing wherever possible between classes and year levels. So really trying to um, keep both st staff and students uh, limiting the people that they have touch points with throughout the day um, to try in the so that in the event that there could be someone that attends uh, school while infectious with COVID, that the um, that we can sort of contain and limit their exposure in any one given day. I think what we're hearing back from schools, um, it, the, the point of having these principles really is to set them at a, at a higher level, to be really clear about the advice that we're recommending and why, and to recognise that all schools are set up in, in slightly different ways with different contexts. And so we want to support them to be able to adapt uh, this advice to their context and their local environment wherever possible. Uh, and we're hearing really fantastic and practical strategies about school how schools are implementing um, uh, implementing these strategies and, and we'll continue to get more feedback about that. So I'm, I'm really happy to talk about this in a little bit more detail when we have some time to, but I'll go to the next slide. One, um, one area that I was hoping to get into a little bit more detail with you all today is about um, attendance at school. Obviously, we're really keen for everyone, um, as many students as possible to be returning at school. But we do um, recognise that uh, some cohorts of the community do have higher risk and certainly feel um, because of having um, um, underlying conditions or other complex medical needs might be feeling quite apprehensive about the return to school and what that means. And, and we would anticipate having those sorts of discussions with their GPs or medical specialists about whether the return to on-site is appropriate for them. Uh, in terms of that risk-based approach to whether uh, students should be attending school on site, we've certainly taken um, our policy settings are very much about an individualised risk assessment. We encourage all students uh, who have a complex medical condition to seek advice from their uh, medical practitioner or specialist. 
um, about decision making about whether it's suitable to return on site. We do have a, um, a fact sheet which we um, target for both schools and families um, and I'll distribute the link um, as well with this pack to you all because I think it's um, it has some really reassuring advice from the Chief Health Officer about risk, about the types of conditions um, that are quite common among child uh, uh, at school-aged children and really a message that we don't anticipate that for the vast majority of children that might have an underlying condition, that that means that they can't attend school, particularly recognising that schools are quite controlled environments with a range of risk reduction measures in place. Um, but we do want parents to um, have that conversation with their doctor about what's right for them and, and hope that, it, um, and, and trust that in that situation that you're able to provide quite reassuring advice uh, to those students or to recommend where adjustments are required so that those students feel safe um, in the school environment. Um, that's probably as much to say about that at the moment. Um, so we'll skip to the next slide. Uh, one thing again, and this might seem quite obvious, but I hear um, quite frequently um, it, through other networks that this is something that would be coming to you quite often with parents um, uh, perhaps seeking certificates about about the um, when their child's unwell and if they can return to school. And so I just wanted to be really clear about what the policy settings the Department of Education and Training have about staying at home unwell, which we've developed with DHHS um, and are consistent with the advice across government. So uh, we're very clear, this is a very, um, I suppose, black and white policy at the moment that if you are unwell, that you must stay at home. School is not a place uh, at at this point in time in the pandemic where you can attend if you have any symptoms that are compatible with COVID-19. Um, if a child's unwell, we're encouraging parents and students to stay at home even with the most mildest of symptoms until they've um, recovered. Um, government's also recommending at the moment that anyone with symptoms does get a test. Uh, and so stu um, students who are uh, sent home will be encouraged to have a test and to stay at home until they've got those test results. Um, even if a negative test result is, is returned, we still want um, we still want the student or the staff member to, to stay at home until their symptoms have resolved in addition um, before they return. Now, schools will not require a medical certificate for um, our, our policy settings are not to require a medical certificate before return. Um, in some private settings that that might there might be some local policies, but that's certainly not a um, policy of the department to require a medical certificate after having a test. Um, <clears throat> but we do know that there's sort of um, sometimes that there are some local policies where some um, where some schools or services might require that, but that's not a um, policy setting of the department. Um, we, uh, we might flick to the next slide, and I think Deb um, mentioned this one as well in terms of underlying issues and compatible symptoms. Like we're very conscious that being um, in pollen season at the moment, uh, that there are a lot of similar symptoms between particularly um, asthma and hay fever, uh, which could be creating, you know, quite confusion. And uh, our advice in that space really is to be recommending staff and students who do suffer from hay fever or do have asthma to um, engage with their medical practitioner at this time and get their management plan updated. We're conscious, of course, of the um, updated management 
um, guidelines around asthma um, and that this is just the beginning of hay fever season. So advice has gone out to schools uh, either this week or next. I'm not too, too sure when um, send, uh, send was hit on that message, but related to thunderstorm asthma, also encouraging everyone who um, has asthma or hay fever or has experienced those symptoms before to engage with their GP and to get their management plan updated. Our advice um, in this, the advice from the health department in this space is that the, the best way to avoid um, uh, having to deal with compatible symptoms or, or perhaps to, to the need to stay at home is to make sure that these conditions are very well managed at this time. Um, and so I think if there is another slide, uh, and look, finally to touch on this, but as um, Bianca said, not wanting hopefully to have much of a focus, but we must acknowledge that whenever there is uh, cases circulating in the community, invariably there may be someone that might attend their workplace or attend school while they're infectious unknowingly. Um, DET has really um, comprehensive procedures in place with DHHS um, to respond to a school. We've, we've obviously had an opportunity to give them great practice, particularly during the second wave. Um, but immediately when we have report of a confirmed case um, on the school site within 24 hours normally um, by the end of the day we <clears throat> will we'll close that school down and while while the school is closed just for a short time that's to um, work with DHHS to make sure that we um, have identified the close contacts of the case um, can, can commence cleaning at the school site where the person attended while infectious um, and have contacted the close contacts and made sure that they are in quarantine before the schools reopened. Um, that's a really uh, rapid process at the moment. Uh, the average closures happening across um, two days uh, can be a little bit longer depending on the school site, but really close relationships working with DHHS so that um, we can have rapid notification, both of um, cases, closure of the school, and, and then following on, as Deb mentioned, to um, get in touch with close contacts too. I have just included on the last slide um, a few links. Oh, so sorry. I was sort of. Um, one other thing, thanks for the reminder, Gemma, I've got one more slide. Um, even though our policy is in place to make sure that students aren't attending while they're at um, while they're unwell at school, we do recognise that um, students may become unwell during the day or, or a staff member for that matter. And so there are, are also procedures in place for to support the school to deal with um, someone that becomes symptomatic during the school day while they're being um while they're waiting collection to go home. So any staff or students who are experiencing compatible symptoms will be isolated. Um, school staff uh, um, have PPE guidelines about the appropriate use of um, PPE when dealing with someone that's displaying symptoms. Um, and then there's procedures around cleaning, um, testing and return to school as well that, that it go associated with that. Um, it's not a nice place to end on talking about cases. Uh, we do hope that this is going to be something that we don't have to deal with too frequently, but the message really there is that schools are very well prepared to deal with that when, um, when that does happen. Um, uh, and so I think we've kind of, we've covered all bases. I'm, I'm quite aware that I've flicked through some slides. On the last slide are three core documents that we're, um, we rely on 
quite a bit um, that are public facing and available to you to, um, to have a look at. The first um, is the health and safety advice that we provide to schools and have um, updated at each quarter uh, or different stage of the pandemic. That's advice that obviously we develop um, and produce to government schools, but also disseminate widely for Catholic and independent schools. We're really working very closely with um, all school sectors to make sure that there's a consistent approach to reducing the transmission of COVID across all, all education settings. Um, the second sheet I spoke to before, that's about um, a, a fact sheet really targeted at students with um, complex medical conditions. And the third is for all families, but also GPs to understand our policy settings about managing unwell students. Um, these documents are updated. Our website does move around a little bit, but you should, um, the main page there will help you migrate to the, to the details. And if you ever need um, anything else, you can always contact me. So that concludes the panel presentation for this morning. We'll now bring you the PHN update from Rapid Fire Q&A at the end. We're now going to move across to uh, CEO Rowena Clift. Welcome this morning. Thank you, Bianca, and thank you to the presenters and Claire, such a fantastic presentation. So thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, there's still a lot of work to be done in this space, and I'm pleased that we're going to continue with our project um, ECHO sessions. And also we're doing a lot of work around supporting our general practices um, with outbreaks, particularly in areas where there's sewage testing and all of those sorts of things, and we find out there's um, new things to be dealt with. Um, concerningly, we're hearing the data around we're about 2,000 cancer diagnoses behind where we would be normally. Um, um, so there is a large amount of work to do in the cancer screening area, in vaccinations, um, and really thinking about the holiday season because we know our beautiful region is very popular um, with uh, tourists. So really starting to think about that. Um, I just want to have a shout out to the Health Pathways team who have been doing a huge amount of work and are leading the world, quite frankly, in um, the development of Health Pathways. And finally, I want to say a really strong focus from Western Victoria Primary Health Network on mental health. Um, we've opened Head to Help in um, Norlane at and in Sebastopol. 1800 um, 595 212 is the number that you can call. Um, and that's um, all age groups. Um, and that's about people who probably have not um, sought met mental health assistance previously or affected by job loss. Um, we really encourage you to. Um, promote that service and there will be more information coming around that. Um, and please, if there's anything that you are looking to the PHN to assist with, you can feedback via our website or please go to your practice facilitators who are, are very good at letting me know what matters. So thank you and thanks, Bianca, for your great hosting. Thank you very much, Rowena. Great. All right, so now we're coming to our rapid fire questions. Um, Deb and Rachel, has there been much coming through to you about uh, for infection control and prevention questions this morning? There was a question about the ongoing use of face shields um, when you're in a low prevalence population. Very topical. Let me just say the thing that I forgot to say before, but that everything right now is traffic lights, i.e. every system. And as you saw, people who've looked at the Murdoch Children's paper, they've got a traffic light system as well. Everything is traffic lights and my work that I'm doing is all traffic lights. But just to say where we're sitting now in all of regional Victoria 
is we are in the green section. What the dispute is right now and the question about the eye protection is how long you need to be in the green light section before you drop the additional things such as eye protection. We're coming to an agreement on that. What's been proposed is eight weeks, so eight weeks of in the green very quiet. Now, that doesn't mean you have to have zero cases for eight weeks to dispense with eye protection. My personal opinion is that it should potentially be shorter than that. But if we look at where we're sitting right now, we're probably a few weeks away from that. That'll be something that I think we can talk about every week. But the other thing is that eye protection can still be used at the at your own discretion. Personally, I think that there is zero risk and I would be very happy to dispense with the eye protection, but that's not what's going to go out in guidelines because guidelines are about, you know, being more conservative, obviously. But I think the risk is extremely low in a low prevalence setting. And and I guess the other thing is that eye protection protects against the theoretical risk of infection acquisition through the eye, which is actually fairly uncommon in itself, but it is a theoretical route of transmission. Um, Rachel, did you have anything else to add? No, I, I figured I'd go to you, given that you're writing, helping to write the documents with DHHS. Did you see there's a couple more questions that have snuck in through the chats? Have there been any research done on saliva testing, perhaps weekly for schools and residential settings like boarding houses? Um, there were some papers about this. So there's been some publications about this. It's an incredibly interesting piece um, of work. There are some people at Murdoch who are very, very much in favour of this, but it's not been put into place as a strategy to my knowledge right now. But it's certainly something that's been used overseas and the thinking is that it's a very useful tool, especially when you want to do a sweep across a group of people and see do you pick up a signal of coronavirus in this you know, classroom of 30 kids or in this school of however many, and you can actually do pooled saliva, so not even separate saliva. You can get saliva from 30 different people and batch it together. And if you don't get anything, then that means that that 30 was clear. So that's that approach has been tried overseas. I, I'm, I, I think it's a, it's a really innovative approach, which could be very helpful, but um, it's not in widespread use yet, although... What we're noting now is that there are still some situations where saliva testing is being used when you cannot do your ordinary swabbing. Saliva testing point further and wonders could it be used for hay fever sufferers? Uh, does that mean not swabbing them but doing their saliva? And then why would that be preferable in a hay fever sufferer in particular? Like I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I guess the question is, is saliva... Is saliva a useful test in a low-risk person, perhaps that's kind of more what the question is, where you've got someone where you really think you've got an alternate diagnosis, is saliva the approach that you would take? Um, the, the saliva is probably based on what I've seen so far. It's not quite as reliable yep. as the swab. So okay. it depends how reliable you want to be in your testing. Thank you. Quite reliable, I'd say. This series was brought to you by the West Vic PHN. I'm Bianca Forrester and I'm the GP facilitator for this series. I'd like to acknowledge the work of Gemma Misbach, Natalie Love, Fiona Quigley, Matt Dixon and Kate Graham for their work in coordination, support and contribution to this series. These audio catch-ups are produced by Gemma Misbach, myself and Jade Buller. Come along and join the discussions on Thursday mornings at 7.30am via Zoom. You can register on the West Vic PHN website by looking up Project Echo COVID-19. 
All sessions are RACGP and ACRAM accredited as a time-based activity and CPD certificates are available for non-GP participants. Thanks for listening and join us again next time.